What's up, everyone? It's your host, Jonah. Welcome to the Blue Collar Enlightenment Show, where we learn new things every episode through conversations with people around the globe. Today, we welcome Doug Knoll, lawyer turned peacemaker, best-selling author, speaker, visionary, teacher, and co-founder of Prison of Peace. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Doug. How are you doing, man? I'm doing really well, Jonah. How are you doing today? I am doing about as good as I can get. Voice is coming back finally, feeling good. So, can't yeah, there's good. there's some bad bugs going on out out there. Yeah, I don't know what what I got a hold of, but uh, it got me good. Oh wow! <laughs> so uh, tell tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I'm 72 years old. I uh, grew up in Southern California. I was born with a lot of disabilities. I was born uh, partially blind, partially deaf, two club feet. Bad teeth, left-handed, couldn't walk till I was three years old. Pretty much a mess, uh, but I was gifted with a good mind. And I um, ended up going back east to an Ivy League school for my college work and then came back to California, went to law school, became a lawyer, and uh, became a trial lawyer. And for 22 years, that's what I did. I tried large civil cases, financial and business cases, primarily commercial cases. And then through a series of circumstances that really started in the mid-1980s, but ultimately led to uh, the mid-90s, I decided I didn't want to be a trial lawyer anymore. And I went back to school and got my master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies. And I became an, uh, a really deep student of why do people fight? What do they fight about? And what are the interventions that we can use to help people when they're when they're when they have problems with each other that led me to leave the practice of law in 2000 and I became a peacemaker and that's kind of how it all started and what made you want to get into law in the first place well in those days if you graduate from an Ivy League school as a general proposition uh, if you didn't go to med school you probably ended up in law school <laughs> And I didn't want to work that hard to become a doctor. So I, I just so, sort of went to law school by default, <laughs> not even knowing if I wanted to be a lawyer. And what was the point that you decided that you wanted to make the change? Well, it happened on a river trip um, after a trial. And a bunch of friends and I were got a permit to run the Maine Salmon in, in central Idaho, big whitewater river. And so I was spent the week on my raft all by myself rowing through these beautiful rapids and canyons thinking about how many people I'd really served as a trial lawyer. And I could only count five people that had really truly served. And I said, I don't want to do this anymore. If I'm going to go another 30 or 40 years, I don't want to, at the end of my career, say I've only really helped 20 people. And do you still practice law at all? I don't, I, I, I don't practice law. I have a couple of clients that I help out every now and then that I've known for a long time, but I don't, my practice today is as a mediator, an arbitrator, a peacemaker, you know, I'm an author, speaker, teacher, and trainer. And I'm, I'm really, and I got a new project I'm working on, which I'm really excited about where I'm helping people uh, have difficult conversations. How many people do you know, Jonah, that, that have a difficult conversation with somebody that they're avoiding? Quite a few. Yeah. Why? That's the way it is with most people. And so what I'm, I'm offering to do free, difficult conversations, I'll do it for free. Um, 
but the catch is you got to let me stream it on. You got to let me stream the conversation on YouTube live. Oh, that's interesting. So like reality TV. That is interesting. It's like a live, live Judge Judy, I guess. Huh? That's right. And yeah, we're just going to let it all hang out. I, I've, <laughs> I've done. A, uh, I started this project in October. I've done two or three. They've been phenomenal, phenomenal right. results. People were just amazed at how I can help them stay calm and cool and have these really difficult emotional conversations. Yeah, I feel like that uh, a lot of people these days, it's hard for them to have those conversations because they don't want to hear the wrong, you know, that they're wrong or that, you know. Well, yeah, strong emotions come up and people get really, they get defensive and then they start fighting to be right and they stop listening. And the secret to having a difficult conversation, and the secret to all peacemaking is learning how to listen. And not to, just to the words, but listening to the emotions too. Right. And you see that definitely within the politics side of, you know, at least our world today. And that that's, seems to be the hardest conversation to have, when in all reality it shouldn't be because we should be able to have these things. I agree. And I have a... I have a way I, I teach people how to have a calm conversation with the politically polarized. And, and um, the secret again is listening, not trying to persuade somebody of the righteousness of your cause, but being willing to listen to them and try to understand why they are the way they are, why they feel the way they feel, why it's important to them. And when you do that, you find out you have much more in common with people than you have in, in differences. And, you know, the problem we have today politically is that politicians get elected on division and fear. Not They don't get elected on leading us to the light. You're and right. people ask me, people ask me, who do you vote for? And I said, I'll vote for the politician that will lead me to the light. I will not vote for somebody that leads me into the darkness. That's right. I'm more of a common sense guy. You know, I'm, I probably won't be voting in the next couple of elections, but... I really, I've really taken a step back from politics, and I've really tried to view the big picture. And it's just a horrible thing. Uh, some of these difficult conversations between uh, spouses are probably very complicated as well. It is, and and conversations between people who are divorced that are trying to raise their children. I just right. did a. I'm just working with a couple who are divorced, and their 15 year old teenage son tried to kill himself. Oh God. And the mother caught him with a with a leather uh, belt around his neck, hanging from the ceiling. Got him in time. He didn't die. And they couldn't. When I first started working with them, they they couldn't even they couldn't even begin to talk to each other. But you know, I worked with them for a week, and now the kid's in a great program, and he's doing well. And you know, the the parents are starting to be able to listen to each other a little bit. That's good to hear. Yeah, I think uh, the younger, my generation, I guess you could say my generation and younger, when they split, when parents split up, there is a communication barrier and it's really rough on the kid. Absolutely. And especially the way that the uh, society views fathers, that they really, that they think they can't do what they could be able to do to be in that child's life. Well, I don't know whether it's cultural 
poor upbringing. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really not sure what the problem is. Obviously, it's you you bring a child into the world and then your relationship breaks down. There's a lot of bitterness mm-hmm. and a lot of hatred. And too often that bitterness and hatred gets reflected in a war over how you're going to, what your parenting is going to be around the children. And yeah, because you want to do the complete opposite of the other parent. That's right. And reactive. Then, so just a reactive devaluation of whatever the other parent wants to do. And then the parents get divided between who's the cool parent, and who's the disciplinary. That's, uh, yeah. The kids are, they're in a no win situation. Right. So I help basically the people in those situations. I help them. That's awesome. Yeah. It must be a good feeling when you can break through to two people that are, that can't have a a civil discord and be able to get in it, get in there and fix that stuff. You're right. It's it's very satisfying, and the cool thing is I've never failed at it. Never. Well, that's awesome. That's because awesome. Of what because of what I know how to do, and what I teach other people to do. So what are, what are kind of some of the steps, if you don't mind me asking, of not at all go by. Go about so it. when people come into the Zoom room, because I'm doing this all by Zoom, and I, I, the very first thing I said, this is not, this is an exercise in listening, not in talking. You're going to spend far more time listening in the next hour than you're going to be spending talking. And what you're going to listen for are emotions. And so I give these instructions. I said, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to ignore the words. One person is going to be telling his or her story. If you're the listener, you're going to ignore the words. And you're going to just read the emotions. What are the, what are the emotions that this person is having right now as the story is being told? And then at every now and then we'll stop and take a break. And I'll reflect back the emotions first. I'll, I'll tell the person what they're feeling, what they've been feeling as they told the story. And then you're going to do exactly the same thing. You're just going to repeat word for word what I said. So you basically, instead of doing active listening, which doesn't work, you're basically doing emotional listening reflecting back emotions and brain scanning studies show why this works so well. And there's all kinds of neuroscience behind this that shows that when you engage in this type of emotional listening, the emotional centers of the brain are calmed down almost instantly. And the prefrontal cortex or executive thinking function of the brain is reactivated. It all happens unconsciously and the emotional person can't help himself or herself. They have to calm down. They have no choice. That's just how the brains are hardwired. So it's literally like taking a switch on, you know, on your back and flipping it, going from angry to calm. And it happens about that fast. Interesting. So how hard is it to kind of coach these people into reading emotions within a conversation? In the beginning people are challenged by it because they've never been told to listen to emotions. And that's why when they're going to, I will always reflect back first. So I model the behavior that I want the other, the listener to engage in. And then, and then I just have them imitate me, just say what I said. And what they don't, what they think is, well, you just told this person what they're feeling. Why should I do it? And I said, because it's more, it's going to be more meaningful if it comes from you. And it always is. And you always use a you statement. You don't use any I statements. So I'd say, Jonah, you're really angry. You're really pissed off. And you are really frustrated. And, and then, and we go. And then when we're done, the, 
person keeps telling his or her story. And we just go through this process. And each time we stop, I reflect, then the other person reflects. And usually by about the third time, they start to figure it out. And then when they start running out of emotions that I see that they have mismatches, say this, say this, say this. I'll, I'll just coach them on what to say and how to say it. And what we find is that within an and then once you know once the speaker is done and I say, um, do you feel do you feel like you've been heard? And the speaker says, yes, I feel deeply heard. Then we switch roles. The speaker becomes the listener. The listener becomes the speaker, and we do it again and we just reiterate. And what we find is that in an hour, there's been a transformation because people people have a need people have a need more than anything else to be deeply validated. And when they're deeply validated with somebody who they have a relationship with and they've been deep avoiding this difficult conversation because it's too scary, you know, they're afraid of a blow up or a rupture or, you know, just really difficult. When they see that they can walk through the walk through the wall, so to speak, like Superman and actually get through it, it's transformative for them. Yeah. How long did it take you to learn these skills? Was it through your college uh, degree? My master's, no. It, interestingly enough, I didn't learn any of this in my master's degree stuff. I, I discovered it on my own. Really? I literally discovered this in a mediation in 2004, four, five, 2005. It turns out it was a divorced couple, super angry at each other, and I didn't have any tools to use. And the, the thought came to me, listen to the emotions. Cool. And so... I got a miraculous result, and they, when the process started, they were so angry at each other. If there had been knives on the table, there would have been blood on the floor, literally. And by the end, they w walked out holding hands to have lunch with each other. Wow. And I knew what I'd done, but I didn't know why it worked. And so I continued to start re practicing and refining it, and I got the same results in every Every time I used it, I got the same amazing results. And then a couple of years later, the brain scanning study started coming out showing what, what was going on and why it worked as well as it did. And I was still getting a lot of skepticism. And that's when that's about the time that my colleague and dear friend Laurel Coffer and I started the Prison of Peace Project. Uh, yeah, and the first about to the, roll into that. If, uh, yeah, the first skill that we teach in Prison of Peace is how to listen to the emotions. And can you uh let the listeners know a little bit about uh, Prison of Peace and what that's all about. Yeah, in 2009, Laurel, who is a mediator in Los Angeles, uh, I live in Central California, about four hours north of L.A., um, received a, a handwritten letter from a woman in the, from the, serving a life sentence without possibility of parole in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world, which happens to be about an hour from where I live. And this woman, uh, Susan Russo, asked Laurel if Laurel would be consider coming into the prison and train the women who are serving life sentences how to become mediators and peacemakers to stop the prison violence because they knew they weren't getting out and they were just tired of the violence and they just wanted to find a way to stop the stop the problems because the the correctional officers at the time were not helping at all and Laurel read the letter to me over the phone as soon as she received it and said, what do you think? And I said, oh, I think we should do this. So uh, it took us six months, but we finally got permission to start. We started in April of 2010 with 15 women. And today we're in 30 prisons around the world. And we're going to be expanding rapidly in the next year or two because during the pandemic, we filmed our entire curriculum. 
And what's really cool is we we used in the training, we used people that we had trained who were incarcerated. They were our top trainers. They got released on parole and we brought them all into Southern California and used them as the trainers and teachers in the video. It's so cool. That's awesome. Giving them a second chance. Well, it, it what, what I learned was that m- most people in prison hate violence. But violence is the only method of conflict resolution they know. Right. And when you teach them that there are other ways to resolve fights and arguments without violence, they just, they go to it like a duck goes to water. I mean, they thirst for this stuff. And I'm when sure they, they, I'm sure there's a lot of guilt within themselves for what they've done. Oh, sure. Them. And so they want to make it better. That's right. I think. A lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of our students are, once they get into the project and they start learning, they start realizing that they're going to be living a life of service, not serving a life sentence. Yeah. And, and so they, so they really get completely immersed in, in it and still, um, and, and continue to teach. And to this day, you know, we've got the project operating in prisons in California where we haven't been in the prisons in years and they're still doing prison of peace. Um, how big of a difference has it made within the, the correctional facilities themselves? We observe that when we go into a yard uh, and we start training people on the yard, how to be mediators and peacemakers within a year, there's almost always a, 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 a pretty substantial reduction in violence. We've even gotten unsolicited letters from the wardens wow. um, telling us how prison of peace has quieted down the, the yards that we work in. And when y'all first started, how much of a struggle was it to get into the prison system to start teaching this? Well, we we're both lawyers, uh, but we weren't, we weren't ready for the bureaucracy. It's, prisons are very bureaucratic places. And uh, it took a long, it took six months for us to get a final approval to go. And then once you, once we got going, that doesn't mean it's easy. The training conditions are really poor. Prisons are not set up for training and teaching. So you scramble for space and the spaces you get are not conducive to good training. You, you just do, you work with what you got and you can't take any electronics in. So it's all old school flip charts and, you know, markers and <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, and you never know what's going to happen when you're in prison. I mean, we could drive two hours to go to a prison to, to teach for the day and get there and find out the prison locked down. And nobody ever bothered to call us to tell us, don't, don't come in because we're locked down. You show up. Oh, we're sorry. I forgot to call you. You know, two, three hour drive. That's happened more, more than once. Do you have you had any of the uh, correctional officers themselves sit through your classes? No, they. As a general rule, what is the correctional officers think what's good for the inmates is bad for us. That's sort of the attitude. Well, I don't think in this case that that it's not true. But it, yeah. it, you know they're very they have their they have their attitudes and beliefs, which they're entitled to. And most most prisons are privately owned, correct? No. Uh, most prisons are run by the state. The federal government has contracted. There are two, com- two corporations that do private prisons, and the, the federal government has contracted with uh, those companies 
for federal incarceration. A few states have, have tried private prisons, but for the most part, it's, it's their public, public agencies. And it, it, if you think about it, it makes sense. I mean, the, the problem with private prisons is, is that the prisons are not, are not compensated for rehabilitating the people that are incarcerated. They're, they're in, they are uh, compensated for just housing and, and stopping the violence and keeping, keeping people as safe as they can possibly be. Whereas the, in, the, in the state prisons, there is some rehabilitation. And in California, for example, studies show that for every dollar spent in rehabilitation, you save $1,000 in incarceration expenses. So what's kind of the average uh, size of class when you, when you have one? We started out with 15, and then we got such a huge demand. The waiting list went from zero, nobody knew about it, to within five weeks, the word got out about the, the quality of the, of the teaching, and uh, we had a 800 women on our waiting list. And so we immediately tripled the size of our class from 15 to 35. It varies from prison to prison because of, of security arrangements and how, you know, what, what's the security level of the prison. But, for example, there's a, uh, one prison, one men's prison we worked in where we, we've had uh, 60 men in the room, training 60 men at a time. And this is something that they can uh, just sign up for themselves, right? We put posters through all, in all the housing facilities that sort of describes prison of peace. People sign up with sign up sheets that they want to attend the orientation, and then on orientation day, we show up and we get, take forty five minutes and try to talk them out of joining prison of peace. We try to make it as make it. We're pretty brutal about it because we don't want people just to show up just because they want to show up. We want people to show up because. <laughs> they feel a calling to it. And uh, so out of, uh, say, at an orientation, we'll have 100 people in the room. We might get 25 that show up for the very first class, and out of that, we'll lose 10, and so we'll end up teaching 15. Now, once the word gets out after that first class about how good Prison of Peace is, then we get, a, we get, we get the waiting lists. What are some of the things that you, that you teach them? In the first, we're, we divide it into four modules, and the first module is called the Circle Keeper module, and we're teaching some very basic peacemaking skills. We're teaching uh, people how to listen. There are four levels of reflective listening, and we teach those four levels the very first day. And then we teach uh, our students how to run a peace circle, which is a form of group peacemaking, group communication, and they're basically learning group leadership skills at, when they're circle keepers. The second module is uh, how we teach two things. We teach them how to make a durable agreement. How do you make an agreement with somebody and, and, and have that person keep the agreement, which in prison is a horrible problem. You know, people make promises that you loan them your coffee or something and you'll never see it again. And that creates a lot of friction. So how can you make a durable agreement? And that becomes important later on because when you're a peacemaker, you get people to they're going to they're going to reach an agreement and end their fight and so you've got to have a durable agreement and then in the second part of that module we teach people how to help people solve problems without giving advice and that's a very powerful skill again it's a skill you need to have as a mediator <laughs> i was about to say that is a very powerful skill yeah and it's it's all based on the listening everything we do is builds on itself so they start they learn the basic listening skills and every skill that we teach after that builds on the listening skills. 
Then in the third module, we we get we go a lot deeper. We start teaching them how to manage strong emotions, their own and other people's. We teach them about uh, how to be emotionally competent, how to recognize their own triggers, so they 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 can recognize when if they're mediating a conflict that they're they're starting to get escalated and starting to get angry. We teach them how to work with that. We teach them how to morally re-engage people who are morally disengaged, which in prison is a pretty handy tool to have. Yeah. And when they finally get through all of that, uh, we run them through uh, the, for, the, the uh, fourth module, which is the mediation workshop, where we teach them a pretty standard interest-based mediation process. And that, that training takes three full days to do that. Wow. And then at the end, after they've gone out and done all their homework, of which there's a substantial amount, we certify them as prison of peace mediators. They get more training in prison of peace than the average person taking a mediation class in the outside world gets. They get twice as much training as, a, as you would take if you took a mediation course in your community. What type of speaking do you engage in? Uh, inspiring speaking. <laughs> <laughs> what type of things do you speak? I mean, really what I, I'm, I'm, I'm re- at my stage in life, I'm really trying to promote a, a very simple but profound idea. And that is that we're 98% emotional and only 2% rational. Everybody thinks that we're rational. That's a myth. It's been perpetrated on us for 4,000 years. But neuroscientists today are pretty clear that we are emotional beings and we only have tiny moments of rationality. And so if if this is true and we are not rational beings, as we are taught to assume, then we need we need emotional mastery. And the problem is that because we are so bought into the myth of rationality, we look at emotions as being evil or irrational or weak or touchy-feely or feminine, not recognizing that it's our hidden genius or our emotions. So in my talks, I talk about that. And I go through, kind of go through the history of philosophers and theologians who developed this myth of rationality. And I, then I show the science of why this is why it doesn't work. This is why most of our problems in our, on our planet come down to the fact that we don't, we're not willing to acknowledge that we're emotional and not rational. And the moment you get that insight, the moment you start seeing that people are emotional, not rational, then all of that chaos and confusion and all the conflict and all the craziness that you just don't understand, it looks incomprehensible to you, it becomes crystal clear. And you can walk into any situation and immediately assess what's going on and know exactly what to say and how to say it and when to say it in a completely appropriate way, no matter how intense the situation is. And it builds this deep sense of peace and calm and grace inside of you when you're able to do that. So you transform as a human being, as you transform others around you. And there, you just got my 60-minute yeah, te- you got my 18-minute TED talk in two minutes. <laughs> I had a uh, Paul Sambataro. He has a PhD, and he's the president of uh, Houston Behavioral Health Institute. Hmm. And he's doing a lot of, of research within the emotional emotions in our cognitive uh, field, I guess you could say. Um, and he's coming up with different ways to teach people how to control their emotions by learning what your emotions actually are and right. the situation around them. Right. So emotional emotional self-awareness, emotional self-regulation, and cognitive empathy, those are the skills you have to learn. And what I teach and talk about is cognitive empathy, learning how to read the emotional data fields 
and reflect back the emotions to the speaker. When you can do that, you're engaging in what's called cognitive empathy. And as you develop your cognitive empathy skills, you automatically build your own emotional self-awareness and your own emotional self-regulation. It happens automatically. So you can actually learn how to master your emotions very, very quickly just by learning one skill and then practicing it over a period of weeks. Completely changes you. You reprogram your whole brain. It's not hard. It doesn't take therapy. It doesn't take you know, a huge amount of effort. You just got to practice it. Learn the skills, understand them, and go out and practice. And right. you change. I think it's people trying to find the skills is the problem. Right. It's, there are very few people that... I think I'm the only one that really teaches what I teach. I, well, no, that's not true. I've got a lot of my students are teaching this stuff too. But uh, if you're not teaching, my experience is that if you don't teach it the way that I teach it, then it's not going to work. Because I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if there were other methodologies out there that worked. I absolutely would, would not have gone here. But nothing worked. I mean nothing. And I get paid a lot of money to walk into conflicts and calm people down. And I had to have a tool that worked first time every time. We had to have a tool that when we walked into a prison and taught an incarcerated person how to calm an angry person to stop a fight, it had to work every single time without failure. Lives were on the line. There was just no room for error, zero tolerance for error. And this is the only thing that I know that works every single time without failure. That's phenomenal. And what was the point where you knew you were right? Was it after the first time or did it take you a little while to really get it, took, it refined? And- it was scary to- listening because I remember I'm a lawyer. Right. You know, I'm the epitome of rationality and critical thinking. And the idea that listening to the emotions is the secret to peace was super scary to me because I was afraid that I'd be labeled and judged. You know, oh, no, he's that touchy-feely emotional guy. So it took me a long time, by long, I mean a couple of years, three or four years. It took me years of practice and courage doing it and then finally teaching it to other people and getting feedback from them saying, wow, that's amazing. It really works. And getting that feedback, that gave me more and more confidence. And then, of course, when we started the prison project in 2010 and we saw the amazing transformations that occurred with these people serving time in prison. I mean, they completely changed as human beings. That's when, that's when we, I knew that what I had was extremely powerful. Have you ever found yourself in a scary situation while during, while in a class? Never. What we find is that after the first couple of weeks, our students become intensely loyal to us. And if anybody even outside the class looks at us cross-eyed, there's a stern talking to. Just a talking they to. Self, they self, they are very protective of us. Just a talking to, no violence, right? No violence. So when was the moment you, you knew this was the path that you needed to take? Well, I, it really started back in 1985 or so, somewhere in 84, 85. I took up the martial arts and... About took me four or five years. I was eventually awarded my second degree black belt. And then my teacher told me to go learn Tai Chi. And that would have been 1990, 91. So I started studying, studying Tai Chi as a martial art, not as a contemplative practice. 
And Tai Chi has two really interesting paradoxes. One is the softer you are, the stronger you are. And the other paradox is the more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. Soft to be strong, vulnerable to be powerful. Well, I'll tell you, Jonah, that did not compete with me. I was a hardcore asshole, trial lawyer, secondary black belt, kick, kick names. I mean, our motto was we break bones, not boards. <laughs> and, right? <laughs> but it finally, as I practiced it, it finally seeped into my soul until one day I was in a courtroom cross-examining somebody and the thought came to me, what the heck am I doing in here? And that's when it, that was after that trial, they w went on the river trip. And after the river trip, heard about a new master's degree programming and a master's degree program in peacemaking and conflict studies. And I said, I'm going to give this a try. I don't know whether this is my calling or not, but I'm going to give it a try. And, and I knew after the first day of class as a graduate student again, um, that this was my life and that, and that's how my path unfolded in front of me. So your four books, De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. That's pretty much what we've been talking about the last That's right. Hour. I wrote the book at the request of my incarcerated students. Really? They all said, they knew I was an author. In fact, I finished my third book in 2013. So, so they all knew that I was, a, was an author and they started pestering me. When are you going to write a book that we can share with our families? And so I finally said, okay, I'll write the book. And uh, I wrote it in 2016. Um, it took me six weeks to write it. It was a fast, fast write. It was really easy to write. And um, we sold it to Simon & Schuster in uh, October of 2016. I delivered the manuscript in, at the end, after Thanksgiving in 2016. And we didn't expect it to be published for 18 months. In February of 2017, my agent called me and said, guess what? Uh, I said, well, tell me. She, she says, well... The president of Atria, which is one of the imprints for Simon & Schuster, read your manuscript from cover to cover, unheard of. And she picked up the phone and said, what's the soonest we can get this book published? And so it came out less than six months later, about six months later in September of 2017. It was the fastest turnaround they'd ever done with a book. Yeah. It's very controlling stuff. Very interesting. Well, it's powerful. Very you know, I teach, I teach the how. There are a lot of people that talk about the what. This is what you should do. And I don't do that. I teach the how. I said, this is how you do it. This is exactly what you do, step by step by step, if you want to calm or de-escalate an angry person. You got a few more books. Elusive Peace, How Modern Diplomatic Strategies Could Better Resolve the World's Conflicts. Can you tell me that, what's a little bit about it? Yeah, that book came, came about because I read a book about uh, – how Clinton, um, totally, Bill Clinton totally screwed up the mediation between the, the uh, Palestinians and the Israelis because he didn't know how to handle difficult personalities and he didn't understand anything about negotiation. And I read that book and I was just shocked. He made so many rookie mistakes as a mediator, he and his team. I couldn't believe it. So that got me curious about international conflict resolution. And I started looking at the research and I found out that the United Nations has an 18% success rate in international conflict mediation. No, the United States as a mediator has about a 5% success rate and most other nations and agencies, their success rate runs between five and 8%. 
as a professional mediator that gets paid for doing this work, my success rate is over 95%. I resolve 95% of the cases that I get engaged to handle. And, and I got to thinking, I said, why? Why are, is the international diplomatic corps so poor at mediating? And so I did an exhaustive amount of research and my, that ended up in my book. This is why. They're using 17th century techniques to try to solve 21st century problems. And they're failing left and right. They don't get trained in neuroscience. They don't get trained in cognitive psychology. They don't get trained in behavioral economics. They don't get trained in any of the stuff you need to know to be an effective peacemaker. And yet they call themselves peacemakers. Typically what they do, you know, if the conflict is, they'll bring in a name. Like, for example, in the, the, the Kenyan election crisis in 2008, 2009, they bring in Kofi Annan. He's, a, he was, he's inept. He was inept. He's dead now. He's an inept mediator. He made the problem worse. Kenya is still suffering today because of Anand's mistakes as a mediator um, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, and I don't think that, you know we're putting the right people within politics for that job. No, you don't get called into that work because you want to be a peacemaker. No, 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 no. no. And so as a consequence, you, you become – a high, a high, a highly elected office officer, uh, you know, you high office, and all of a sudden, because you've got this office, that makes you an instant expert at everything. Not true. You Not actually true. worked uh, worked within the government, didn't you? I did some training uh, just before the pandemic. I was engaged by the Congressional Budget Office to train the senior analysts there how to de-escalate members of Congress. They were having a there. It's a neutral body, mm -hmm. the CBN. There's some of the smartest people in the world. That a lot of those people have double PhDs. I mean, they are super smart. I'm smart. These guys are a lot smarter than I am. And uh, they were getting. They were. They had had after Trump got elected. They they were having a huge time, horrible time, um, dealing with the Republicans in Congress. And so they needed a, they needed skills to what, how do we deal with these people? And so they I came in I did two separate trainings teaching them how to use these skills to de-escalate members of Congress and staff. And I got just got a call a month ago from the the uh, National Institutes of Health the NIH and they're talking about bringing me in to train NIH personnel this stuff next year sometime. Well, congratulations! Thanks. Getting that message out there. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, your next book, Peacemaking, Practicing at the Intersection of Law and Human Conflict. That's a textbook. <laughs> and uh, that book was basically came out of my master's thesis. And I was teaching a course in our local law school where I'm the chair of the board of trustees. Uh, I wanted, to, I wanted to take everything that I'd learned in my master's degree program and introduce these concepts to, to law students to show them that human conflict is much deeper and broader than the way the law looks at human conflict. The law takes the human conflict, takes all the humanness out of it and distills it down to rules and you know claims for damages and defenses against that. And so it's completely abstract. Which is, it has, that has a purpose. But as a lawyer, you have to have, you're dealing with human beings. And so you have to be able to understand that there's a whole toolbox of tools and concepts and ideas 
that when a client is asking for help and advice, that you you you're just not restricted to legal principles, but that you understand all these other principles around human conduct and human psychology and neuropsychology and all this stuff. And so I wrote the book because I was teaching a class and I didn't have a textbook. So if you're a professor in graduate school, if you don't have a textbook, you write one. So I did. Interesting. That's freaking awesome. A whole textbook just on that. Uh, now your last book is a very interesting, uh, title sex politics and religion at the office the new competitive advantage that's yeah the new competitive advantage that book i co-wrote with uh dr john bogart a good friend of mine and it's it was published in 2008 way 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 ahead of its time and what we did in that book is argue that leading diversity in the workplace gives you a huge competitive advantage but to lead diversity requires leadership skills that most leaders don't cultivate. And so in the book, we kind of explain what are the skills you need to have to, be, to lead diversity and to be successful at managing a group of people who come from different ethnic backgrounds, different ages, different religious backgrounds, different values and beliefs. How do you take people like that that would normally kind of be oppositional and form them into a cohesive team that can actually do great things. And that's what that book is all about. What are some of the ways that you list in that book of how they go about doing that? Well, we don't write about it in the book, but today, many, many years later, I say, learn how to be, if you're a leader, you got to be emotionally competent. You've got to know how you've got to, you've got to manage your emotions. You've got to be emotionally self-aware You've got to emotionally self-regulate. You've got to have cognitive empathy. You need to know how to listen more than anything else. You need to know how to listen as a leader. You need to be a coach for your people. You're coaching people for improvement. And that's a skill set that leaders are not taught how to be how to coach for improvement. You need um, you know, you need to be looking out after the welfare of your people before they get sick, not when they get sick or when they burn out. You need to be watching that. You you have to learn how to manage your own anxiety so that you don't micromanage. Micromanagers have an enormous anxiety over loss of control. If you're if you have that kind of anxiety and you can't manage your anxiety appropriately, you probably shouldn't be a leader. You've got to you've got to be willing to allow people to make mistakes and be okay with that. Right. Everybody's got to fail. Yeah. And what you what you do is you learn how to set people up for success. So you minimize the risk of failure. Yeah, because they learn their lessons through their own failure. <laughs> and it's there's stuff out there that's easily fixable. Oh, do, yeah, ridiculously fixable. And I think as a society today, failure is so scary to people that it makes them timid not to want to do anything. Well, but that's a, that's a conversation we can have another day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I learned, believe me, I got far more failures in my life than I have successes. That's the same here. So, I mean, I'd be rich if I got paid for failures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, brother, I hear you there. So speaking of hard conversations, this was a uh, question that that was kind of hard for me to want to bring up. But having been born with all the disabilities that you listed earlier, 
what were some of the challenges getting to where you are now? But I also want to hear, I'd like to hear how it helped you as well. Yeah, it was a, I had a really difficult childhood. I grew up in affluence uh, and, and wealth and privilege, but nobody knew how to deal with a kid like me. And the reason that I am, the teacher that I am today is because I had so many poor coaches and teachers. Nobody wanted to mess with a kid who couldn't walk or limped if he could walk and was completely a klutz, unathletic, left-handed, blind, 2400 vision. I mean, or I, they finally discovered my eye, my eye problem when I was in the fourth grade. They couldn't figure out why I was doing so poorly in schools until some school nurse had the bright idea to test my eyesight. And all of a sudden they realized, well, I can't see. So they, they, I go in and get, here I am, what, fourth grade, 10 years old, and I got these big, thick, black, plastic, thick Coke lens glasses. Now I can see. Well, that's a buzzkill when you're a kid because it's, they're, they're pretty ugly, although they, be, they became trendy, but long, long after I was a 10-year-old. So I got a lot of, I had a lot of social ostracization. Couldn't, I was not a good athlete, although I ended up being a swimmer and I was okay. I wasn't a great swimmer. I was an okay swimmer, but not a great swimmer. But the one thing that I learned, the one thing that I swore was that I would learn, I would always remember the pain, the emotional pain of people giving up on me, of not having the patience, telling me what to do, but not how to do it, not having the patience or the time to work with me because I was so slow, because I was I was disabled. And that lesson stuck with me for my whole life. And as I began to teach, when I became an adult, and I st- I've taught all kinds of things. I've taught, obviously, I've taught martial arts. I'm a level three certified ski instructor. Um, you know, I teach all kinds of things other than, I've taught law for a long time. I still teach graduate courses at Pepperdine University. And it's all about the what. I mean, it's all about the how. How do you do it? So that was probably one of the most important lessons, painful lessons I learned. The other thing I learned was that uh, it's okay to be a beginner and always try to be a beginner at something to keep the humility in place. If you can't do something, don't run away from it. It's impossible today. That just means it's going to be difficult in a month. And in three months, you're going to wonder why was this such a big deal? And so, so the focus was learning, learning how to learn. You know, I was, I, as a child, I was in pain. I, my club feet were corrected by surgeries, and which helped a lot. But it, I had the very, and to this day, I have very limited ankle mo- mobility. And so if I stand on my feet for more than an hour, I'm in agony. Um, and so it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. So, so learning how to manage pain learning how to manage in a world where all the kids are athletes and they're all gifted and they're all good looking. And I'm got these Coke glasses and no social skills, <laughs> no, no nothing. You know, you learn, I learned to have humility and, and uh, you also learn to be independent. That's amazing, man. And speaking of personal things that you do, not only are you that Tai Chi master and that second degree black belt, but you're also a helicopter pilot, the certified ski instructor, a white water rafter, a fly fisher, sailor, and a jazz violinist. 
Yeah. That is quite the – how do you find time to do, you know, everything that you're doing? and then It's very time. simple. Very simple. I haven't owned a television set in 40 years. Oh, that's pro- oh, I applaud you because I'm the same way. My daughters will sit in there and watch that daggum TV. I can't stand it. I don't can't like stand TV, it. Don't like TV. I don't watch movies. I don't sit there for – Nope. For I'm, I'm with you. I don't watch movies. I don't watch TV. I don't listen to the radio. Uh, I control, I control my phone use, you know, and, um, it's amazing how, if you really want to do something, if you just start doing it, you can get there, you know, like, like jazz violin. I mean, I taught myself how to play fiddle in law school. So I was a fiddler for a long time, but I was never classically trained in violin. And 12 years ago, I decided to to change and take up jazz, which to play jazz, you've got to be, you got to have all the technical skills that a classical violinist has, plus a whole bunch more <laughs> jazz wow. is really demanding on the violin. Um, it take you to kind of uh, pick that up. Well, I, I, I've been, when I was a fiddle player, I'd been in a couple of bands and really enjoyed performing. And I just wanted a new challenge and I enjoy, always enjoyed the violin. And I just wanted something that I would always be a challenge no matter how old I got. And the nice thing about the violin is it's, if you play it correctly, you don't injure yourself, so you can play it forever. And uh, it's it's the constant challenge of getting of peeling the onion back and learning all the little millions of little things that you've got to do to make a good sound, good intonation and rhythm. You know, classical players are not trained in rhythm very much. Um, they are a little bit, but but jazz is all rhythm. And so right now, for example, I'm studying Afrin, Afro-Cuban rhythms, things called the clave beat, the son clave, the bossa clave, the rumba clave, the um, K- Korean clave. Clave is the, you know, the two sticks that you beat together, but there are certain rhythmic, syncopated rhythmic styles. And the thing about those styles is that much, much jazz is based on these beats, these rhythms from from African, Cuban African rhythms. And so l- mastering these rhythms becomes critically important if you want to be a good jazz player. How many times have you uh, made yourself cringe with the wrong chord? Oh, every day. <laughs> I mean, I was just playing, practicing uh, before we hopped on. And I had I had the lesson with my teacher yesterday. And you would, I've been making this mistake for years. And she's been trying to figure out how to correct it. And finally, I got it. I saw what I was doing wrong. And you wouldn't believe the correction is, it's so simple, but it's physically hard. That's probably why I was making a mistake was I was being physically lazy. And so once I saw, I was watching, see what you're doing on Zoom. Watch your fingers. Do that again. I said, oh, my God, I see exactly what you're talking about. And it was a matter of moving how I moved my finger about a half, less than a half inch to go from a, basically what we would call a, a, a fourth, the fourth to a, to the, to the third or to the minor third using the, the, the ring finger, the third finger across the violin. And that one little thing, I practiced it for 20 minutes today, wore me out. Out of all of those hobbies, which one do you enjoy the most? Skiing. Skiing? 
skiing. Yeah, I love snowboarding. Yeah, we got we got four feet of snow. It got four feet of snow over the weekend. All the storms here in California have come in over the weekend, so I'm not going to go up. You know, uh, yeah, on a storm day, I just don't want to drive up up the hill with in bad weather. But I'm hoping that this weekend will be clear, and I'll finally get my first day of skiing in. I get in. I try to get in about twenty to thirty days of skiing a year. Wow. I live. I live. There's a resort, a ski area that's just right above me. Right. Yeah. I was watching the news earlier today and they were showing uh, how bad the winds are up in this uh, ski areas. Yeah. It hit across the ridges. It was hitting 100 miles an hour. Wow. It was blowing easily, blowing 55 miles an hour here down in the foothills. It, I mean, it was a ferocious storm on Saturday night. Yeah. That storm actually just rolled through today. That's, and it was pretty vicious, huh? Yeah I, yeah, I I drove to work in it, and there were some spots where I just could not see. Yeah, we didn't get snow; we got all rain. But I think probably a good three inches came down this morning. Wow! Yeah, I was driving yeah. through ponds trying to get to the building. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, if you could choose one of the paths uh, within your resume to 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 focus one hundred percent on, which would it be? I don't think I, I think I would continue to do what I'm doing now. I think I would continue to help people solve deep and intractable conflicts, have them help them have those difficult conversations they've been avoiding, have them uh, learn how to have peace in their lives. That's where I have the most influence, and that work gives me a lot of satisfaction. And how, what's the feeling when you finally get somebody to actually do these conversations on a live stream? Is it exciting? I don't get excited. I think I just feel, I feel happy for them. I feel happy for them that they're, that they're help, having this difficult conversation and strengthening or reestablishing their relationship, rebuilding trust. And, and that's, it's a good feeling to be able to do that. I don't get a big. Like, I don't get a big rush out of it. It's just a quiet satisfaction. Do you feel like going live that these the people that do it with you, they really kind of have to keep in the back of their mind that they need to hold their emotions no. a little bit better. No, they almost always forget within the first thirty <laughs> seconds. They forget that we're live streaming. Oh no! And, which is fine because I, you know. What, the reason that I want to live stream it, it, I mean, it's really like a mini reality TV show. That's but true. people are so afraid of having these difficult conversations that I, I want to open up the box. I want to open up the black box and show them, look, these are real people with very serious issues between them. I mean, I've dealt with sexual abuse, suicide. <laughs> I mean, it's heavy, 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 heavy stuff. And, and, uh, I want to show people that it's possible to have a transformative conversation and what it looks like. And they, and they can watch the conversation unwind, unfold. And maybe they say to themselves, wow, if th those people can do it, I can do it too. Maybe there's a way I can bring more peace into my life. Sounds like you need to be a moderator at one of these presidential debates. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. Oh, man. What are the goals for the future of what you're doing? 
Well, I would like to be able to start teaching more and more people how to do this. For example, I've, I've done, some, done some work in schools teaching principals and administrators how to de-escalate children and angry parents. I'd like to see that work expanded. I think there's a huge need in the schools for this. And um, I've had great success with working with school administrators and, and teachers and principals. And I'd like to see that expanded somehow. Um, I'd like to see law enforcement pick these skills up. And because part of the part of police officer standard training is learning how to de-escalate, but the training they're getting is crap. And they, they freely admit it's crap. It's just a check the box kind of thing. They're not really learning how to listen. And I'd really like to see either in the, in the police academies or in their annual training that they learn these skills, learn them and practice them so that, so that they can de-escalate potential violence. They don't have to pull a gun on somebody. They can just listen to them, calm them down, and then deal with the problem appropriately. Um, I'd like parents to learn these skills. My belief is that if parents learned how to listen to their children, listen their children into existence, in 20 years, prisons would go away for the most part. The reason that murderers are not bred, they're born, they're created by their parents. And if we can get parents to really be emotionally mature and listen to their kids, um, you know, we can stop a lot of problems early, early, early on. Right. And I think there's a lot of things in society we really need to look at. Really look at the morality of what we're teaching kids through, you know, the the crap that they put on TV to the video games they're playing on their phone. Right. Uh, a lot of that has to deal with they think it's okay. You know, all these violent games that we see that kids play right. at freaking 10, 11, 12 years old. Right. It's not a good thing for the cognitive function. No, they it's think not. The violence is all right. That's right. And r- frankly, parents allow it to happen because they're lazy. Yep. They're too tired to be able to work with their kids. Well, and they haven't been schooled themselves in how to how to be emotionally competent. So we, it's very difficult for a parent to teach emotional competency if the if the parent is not emotionally competent himself or herself. Right, and sit down and watch what your kids are watching. And if you don't think that if it's good for you, don't put don't let your kids watch right. it. Right, you know. Right. Um, so, what has been the most enlightening moment of your life? Enlightening moment. Well, I'll tell you what, we're getting to the end. I'll tell you a story out of prison, a prison story. I got a lot of them, but this is the one that I like to tell the most. So this was the fifth week of training with our first group of women in 2010. So this would have been the end of April. And we walked into the training room. Laurel and I walked into the training room, dingy conference room. And one of our students, Sarah, was sitting over in the corner quietly sobbing. This is unusual. So we walked over and Laurel kneeled down and said, Sarah, what's going on? And Sarah told us this story. She said, I'm serving, I'm, I've been in prison for 18 years. I'm set, s- serving a 25 to life sentence because as a drunk driver, I killed a family of four. And in that wreck, I came out without a scratch. When I came to prison, I had to turn my three-year-old boy over to my sister to raise. 
I've written to him every single week for every year that I've been in prison. I've never gotten a letter from him. I've never gotten a telephone call from him. I've never had him come to visit me. The only way I know what's going on is with my weekly call with my sister, and she tells me what's going on. After last week's lesson with you guys, I decided to write a new letter. And I thought about all of the emotions that he must feel around a mother who was selfish and abandoned him because of her own alcoholism and and it caused four people to die, uh, vehicular manslaughter, and is now locked up in prison. What must he go through emotionally with a mother like that? And I wrote him a letter. And I listed out all the emotions. I said, you must, you feel this, you feel that. Just exactly the same way that you guys have taught us to listen to each other. I just basically listened to him on paper. And today, for the first time in 18 years, I got a letter back from him. Now, the letter was very, very angry. And he had every right to be angry. But at the end of the letter, he said, I love you, mom. P.S. I'm bringing my girlfriend and we're going to come visit you in three weeks. And she started crying again. And at that, I was, it gobsmacked me. And that, that's the moment that I realized what we had was extraordinary, extraordinary. That it could change that, a life, a, several lives, just by a letter based on the principles that we teach. And that's when I realized that what we were teaching was a foundational skill of life that literally changed lives. It's always a beautiful thing when you can touch somebody else's life and make it better. That's right. At least give them a hand up. That's right. And you're giving them a hand up, not a hand out. And that's the best that's thing right. that you can do for somebody. Right. Where can everybody find you and find Prison of Peace? Is that is is that something that people can go and donate to, or is that? Yes, prison. It's prisonofpeace.org. And if you give me a quick second, I'm pretty sure I created a link for everybody who's listening. I'll look it up here real quick. My website is dougnoel.com, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L.com. And, oh, here it is. And I, I created a, a webpage for everybody who's listening. And it the URL, in fact, I'm going to copy this and put it in the chat box. Oh, no, I, yeah, I can put it in the chat box. But the URL is... Um, dougnoel.co not com dot co and slash uh, blue call the blue collar experience is that right enlightenment enlightenment that's it I'm going to put it in the chat box here for you okay. uh, let's see send us I'll put that I'll put that in the episode description yeah along it's dougnoel.co dot uh, oh here it is down here I'll just copy it down here um Blue, yeah, blue collar enlightenment. So it's blue dash collar dash enlightenment. Okay. And if you go there, if you go there, uh, you'll find all kinds of things, free things. There's a free ebook that describes all about the skills I'm talking about. It'll direct you to the page around difficult conversations. If you have a difficult conversation, there's a link there for that. You can buy my book, Deescalate. And then I offer up some of my online courses. Uh, the the de-escalate video course and the emotional competency courses. Well, amazing. We appreciate that. I'll, I'll definitely have to go check that out. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on. 
I'll make sure to put all your info down in the description, all your all your links, everything like that. I appreciate you coming on the podcast, and you're welcome to come back anytime. I can uh, keep talking. <laughs> okay, Jonah. Thanks, thanks a lot. And we'll keep in touch. Absolutely. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. You can now find us on our new website, thebceshow.com. Go check it out where you can contact us and subscribe. But remember to give us a rate and review. It helps us with that pesky algorithm. Thanks for listening.